So today I want to talk a little bit about what I call our circle of compassion. And so I'd like to start in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, for those of you who uh, look those things up. Let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to help us today. Father, we are so thankful, Lord, for what you've done in our lives, how you've given us a, a new life, a life filled with purpose and direction, a life filled with hope. Lord, today as we look into your word, we ask that you would open up our hearts to truth, open up our hearts to the values that you hold so dear, and we ask that you would just bless us as we look to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus has been traveling with his disciples. He's set his face to go to Jerusalem, and a young man comes up to it, or expert in the law comes and approaches him, and it's picked up in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. It says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replies, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus looks at him and says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the young man, wanting to justify himself, asked, who is my neighbor? It strikes me as I've, I've read through this and studied this as how quickly we are to sometimes try to escape responsibility. Jesus said, you know, love your neighbor. And he says, well, who's my neighbor? How do I get off the hook here? And as, as believers, we're called to a whole different attitude in life. We're called not to try to get out of the, the, the pickle, but we're actually looking to find our way into the Lord's heart. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus uh, validates his ministry or, or states his purpose. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's how he described his mission. And as a redeemed community, as a people of disciples, of wholehearted followers of Jesus, if that's his mission, isn't it reasonable to expect that to be our mission as well? So here's some thoughts that I want to give you this morning about you. The first thing we need to understand is you and I, we're part of a redeemed community. We're not a group of people that are here just because we enjoy one another's company and the video screens are cool and Ashley's a cool kid and can sing wonderfully. We're here because we're joined to Christ. We're joined to him. The scripture describes you and I as, as new creatures. In 2 Corinthians 5, chapter, 7, or chapter 5, verse 17 through 20, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. I could stop here and preach a whole message about who you are, about how God sees you. He does not see you as the, the old person. He doesn't see you as a sinner that is, is lost in, in wickedness and despair. 
He doesn't see you as a broken person. He sees you as a new creature in Christ. He sees you fully whole and fully restored, full of life and full of, of, of the love of Jesus. That's the Father's heart for you. And he goes on as he writes here. He says, all of this is from God who reconciled him, reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. I think that's really good news. And he's committed to us. This is so important. This is a commissioning to each of you. He says, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We therefore, as Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You and I are called to be ambassadors, representatives of the king, to, to speak for him and to seek to reconcile all things to him. So anyway, I'll leave that rabbit trail for a second, and let's continue on with the definition of our neighbor. It's imp- actually, it's really important that we grasp this idea of that we're a redeemed community and that Christ has saved us with a purpose in mind that we would be his ambassadors, that we would be his representation, that we would actually carry the same mission that he defined in his, to set the captives free. So anyway, going back to our story here this morning, in verse 30, Jesus responds to the question of who's my neighbor, and he tells a story. He says, a man was going down to Jerusalem from Jericho, and he was attacked by robbers, And they stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Hmm. And so a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by the other side. Jericho was this road that ran from to Jerusalem, and it was known for many centuries that it was called the Bloody Way. It was the main road between Jericho and Jerusalem, and many of the priests and scribes, they lived in Jericho, but they would travel up to Jerusalem to do their work. And so this whole area was was sort of desolate, and there's just robbers everywhere. So it wasn't an uncommon thing for someone to be attacked and robbed. There was over 12,000 priests that was, uh, and and, uh, Levites that were attending that lived in Jericho that would travel back and forth. So this is, if you're going to be robbed and, and, and stripped naked and left to die, I think you'd want to be a place where a bunch of good religious people would be coming by, wouldn't you? That wasn't the case. Jesus mentions a priest and Levite, not because they were the most uh, frequent travelers on the road, but because of the nature of their office they would have been obligated and expected to show mercy. They saw the man but chose to ignore his plight. The New Living Testament captures this interaction this way. It says, a temple assistant walked over, looked at the man laying there, and decided to go to the other side of the road. And sometimes it's hard to fathom that. We think, oh, we would never do that. If we saw a guy laying half naked, beaten, and we're walking by, we're just not going to walk to the other side of the road. Imagine they both looked at the man and walked away. 
So easy for us to judge these guys. Well, let's see who the hero of the story is. I mean, you're familiar with the story, but this, this would have been shocking. Jesus said, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. This part of the story would have made the listeners very uncomfortable. As Curtis taught and shared a little bit of the history of the Samaritan people to us, we know that they were despised of the Jews. You've got the Levite and the, and the priests. They were respected good church people. But Samaritans? The Samaritans were, were a, a group of half-breeds when King Nebuchadnezzar invaded Israel and dis, uh, dis, uh, ex, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, carried away all the captives. He left a remnant, and they stayed, and they moved up into the Samaritan area, some scribes, and, and they ended up taking <clears throat> wives from, from the people in the area, and, and the Jews looked upon them as, as just being half-breeds. When Nebuchadnezzar released the Jews to come back and rebuild the temple, the Samaritans wanted to help, and they said no, they wouldn't allow them to help. And so then, from then on, there was just animosity between the two people, so much so that people wouldn't even walk through Samaria. And so Jesus is telling this story, and you've got these, these two individuals that are, 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 would be expected to offer help, and they don't. And then here's the most despised person, people group that you could think of, is the ones, one who stops by and helps. It's interesting that... Uh, there's some takeaways from this. What can we take away from this? What, what is it that Jesus wanted us to capture in this parable? Well, the first one was is that love really leaves no excuses. In verse 34, Jesus uh, goes on with the story. He says, the Samaritan went and picked the man up and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. And he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for whatever expense you have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? It's a rhetorical question. And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. See, love leaves no excuses. Love doesn't leave a way out. When we, when, when, when we come across a situation and, and, and we see it and, and the Spirit of God prompts us, love compels us. It doesn't leave us a way out. Love is an action word. You know, as we tr seek to follow Christ, we're not after a concept or a theology or a philosophy we're not looking for a body of knowledge, but we're looking for a way of living. We're looking to be like Jesus. Once that's not a sad side task, but one that we were actually created for and made to be ambassadors of, to show the love of Christ in very practical ways. And it brings me to this idea. <clears throat> love is a circle of compassion. That's what these men had. They had compassion. Love is a circle of compassion with no one outside it. There was no one that was outside of Jesus' compassion. There was no one outside his circle that he didn't want to show mercy on. We each have a circle of compassion. 
It may include friends and families or certain groups like widows and childrens and kittens and puppies and, and the poor, whoever we determine has value. Whoever we de- determine deserves compassion or empathy gets our attention. If we are honest, we have whole groups of people that are outside our circle of compassion. Sink that in. This idea of a circle of compassion. And we've got those who we deem worthy. And then we have those who sit outside that circle. Are you with me here? Those commun- the community outside of our circle of compassion can be drug addicts. They can be homeless. They could be the mentally ill, thieves, the destitute. Those with different values or those with different political ideas. We have whole groups of people that we just write off and say, just, they just step out of our circle of compassion and love. It's interesting, the Washington Post and the Kaiser Foundation asked uh, 1,686 American adults to answer this question about uh, poverty. And it says that, they found that religion is a significant predictor of how Americans perceive poverty. Poverty, Christians, especially white evangelical Christians, are more likely than non-Christians to view poverty as the result of individual failings. Let's boil that down to its simplest denominator. The language of the street would say, they're getting what they deserve. They're getting what they deserve. And so... Why are there poor in this world? And we're going to define poor here in a second. Some are poor by choice. Some are because of calamity. Some because of sin and laziness. Some because of oppression from the rich and powerful. Scripture cites all sorts of other moral failures that cause for poverty, including lack of self-discipline, stubbornness, drunkenness, and gluttony. Poverty can stem from other personal sins, including greed, expensive tastes, dishonesty, and frivolous pursuits. But here's the thing. We think of poverty as only monetary. But there's many times of poverty. There's spiritual. There's relational. There's obviously resource poverty. Many Christians see the failings of others and then justify not walking out what Jesus commands us to do. We see all these needs that sit in our community and they're broad and they're vast. And we can say, well, they're getting what they deserve. We can, we can see their failings and their shortcomings and, and we can just say, well, it's not my problem. Jesus tells another story that I think is so poignant. It, it points to a dangerous mind, mindset that's like a weed that It eats away at a life of love. It tells the story of two men went to the temple to pray. This is in Luke chapter 10. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. And the Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed this prayer, I thank you, God. I'm not like a sinner like everyone else. For I don't cheat, I don't sin, I don't commit adultery. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. 
But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not to even lift his eyes to heaven, and he prayed. He said, beat his chest and said, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, the sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. See, what was happening here is the Pharisee was grading his life on a curve. He was saying, I am righteous because I'm not like him. I'm doing better than 50% of the other kids in the class. Grading his life on the curve. The problem is the standard isn't each other. The standard is Jesus. And if we recognize that, that we all fall short of the glory of God, that we're all in some ways have places of brokenness in our life. We have places of poverty in our own life. If we recognize that, then it does away from this this, uh, idea that we can look at others and determine that they're not worthy because we're all worthy of the grace of God. Amen? We all need it. We're, We're deeply deceived if we think we don't need God's grace and God's help today. And so the way to break through this hardening of heart is to realize our need for God. Realizing daily that today I need a Savior. Today I need this wonderful relationship with Jesus that procures me a place where I can go before God and say, Abba, Father, you love me. And when we do that, something starts to change in our own life. We return to a place of humanity to where we see others as more valuable than ourselves. So I want to ask the question, who's outside your circle of compassion? Who sits outside that place where you look at them and see them and value them? What groups do you write off? If I'm honest, I've got a whole bunch that I've, I've, as God's been speaking with me and dealing with me on this, that, that uh, I've got a, got a bunch. You know, I'm the director of Mission of Hope. This is a rabbit trail. You know, I, I deal with a lot of people. And for years, the church I pastored, we were in the downtown core, and so we just saw many, many people, every day people coming into my office asking for this or that. And I developed a place of hardness in my heart. You know, it just was like, I don't have time for this. And then God deals with that and says, who, who are you? Who are you to make those decisions? That's not your call, son. That's my call. All people are valuable. Anyway, back to my notes here. How do we enlarge our circle of compassion? Realize that, we've touched upon this, once that you were far from God, yet you're redeemed by his unfailing grace and mercy. You had nothing to bring to the table, yet he loved you and had compassion on you. So what we do is we meditate on what Christ has done for us. We think about those things. We realize that Jesus sees every person as equally deserving his compassion and mercy. Every person. The most annoying, the most disgusting, the sex trafficker, the victim, the everybody deserves I don't know if deserves the right word. Everyone is welcome to embrace Christ's compassion. That's scandalous to me. 
It's absolutely scandalous that God has determined that every person is deserving of his compassion and mercy, not because of what they've done, but because of who he is. That's remarkable. So that leads us to an action, and, and that is to repent of our disdain towards those in need. Remember, poverty is not just a lack of material things. It's a multidimensional, and it can take the form of emotional and social and spiritual poverty, poverty of identity and poverty of purpose. Those are the deep areas in people's lives that needs to be touched. Realize that God doesn't say care for the poor as long as you have a working plan to end world poverty. He says, take care of the poor because I love them and I have a special place in my heart for them and I've given them to you to care for. I love Celebrate Recovery because of the way it addresses poverty in its deepest sense, the spiritual and identity and all those things that are so fundamental to health in this life. I've addressed some of the issues of the heart this morning but I want to share a little bit of my story to lay the groundwork for the second part of what I'd like to share this morning. As a young man, my life was destroyed by bitterness, drugs, and broken relationships. I was homeless, nowhere to go, on the streets every day experiencing every type of poverty, monetary, spiritual, relational. I was just broken. I was on a freeway on-ramp in Fresno, California, sitting confused and without any hope in the future, a broken man. All I had was the clothes on my back and this old torn-up sleeping bag that I had stuffed in a long-sleeved shirt that I had buttoned up, tied off on the bottom, and turned the arms up through the neck, and that was my pack. That's all I had. And I'm sitting there, and a good Samaritan named Don Copeland... (coughs) found me high on LSD and started engaging me in conversation, telling me about Jesus. I'd love to say that I was like, oh, please tell me more. Actually, I told him where he could go. I won't go into all the details, but Don ended up spending all night with me, sitting on that lonely on-ramp, sharing the good news of Jesus' love for me. And just Don's presence opened me up a bit. And at some point, he offered to pray for me. And when he prayed for me, I had a revelation of how my bad decisions had ruined my life. That my life was the sum of decisions that I made. I had trauma in my life as a child, but how I responded to those things was what created my circumstance. And I came to realize that I needed to be saved from myself. It was in that moment I came to Christ and embraced Jesus as my Lord and Savior. But that's not the end of the story. That was the beginning. Don invited me to go to, with him as, and we started on an amazing journey. <clears throat> we hitchhiked to Arizona where he shared the gospel with his old friends. He had taken his vacation to go hitchhike around and share Jesus. <clears throat> he suggested uh, that... Um, From Arizona, we hopped a freight train from Arizona to San Bernardino, and then hopped another freight from San Bernardino all the way to Eugene, Oregon. And there he encouraged me to 
to uh, go to a Christian commune called the Lighthouse Ranch. And there, a loving, committed Christian community welcomed me and taught me how to live as a new creation in Christ. All because a man chose to enlarge his circle of compassion. Just because a guy saw a broken shell of a man and said, I'm going to tell him about Jesus. But what was really transformational was the relationship that I found in community. Relationship creates transformation in all forms of material, emotional, social, and spiritual poverty. Loving your neighbor is more than just throwing money at it. It's investing your time and forming relationships, stopping to listen to their story and becoming a part of someone's life. Sometimes we think it takes money to change the world. No, it doesn't. It takes relationship. It takes time to be with people. Never-ending charity has this tendency to make people feel about themselves that their poverty defines them. But relationship opens them up to what they, can, what they are, valuable to Christ, loved by Christ. To truly help, we must take a relational approach, not just a material approach. At its core, helping is about relationships. If we don't know what caused the need, whether it's material poverty, spiritual poverty, or both, we'll never be able to provide the long-term help that enable that person to escape whatever holds them in bondage. And if you were to really examine your story, you would find that relationships are the thread that, that or the conduit that God's love flowed into your life as well. So Christ doesn't just call us to serve those in needs, but to engage and live in community with them. Providing for someone's spiritual and physical needs should be coupled with genuine relationships, invitations into our lives and our homes. Jesus just didn't heal the the crippled, the lame, and the blind, but he also sat and ate with them and spoke with them. And Jesus also calls us to engage without hope of repayment. When we build relationships with those in need, we can expect to be blessed with new friendships, new outlooks on lives, fresh perspectives, and a closeness with Christ as we model our lives after him. Here at Silver Creek, we value life doing together. We love to eat together. We're a purpose-driven community of friends seeking to glorify Christ. We love hospitality, fun, celebration, meaningful uh, action both locally and globally, connecting with our neighbors around the world. Let's invite people into our community. Let's invite them into our circle of compassion. Let's reach out into this community where there's so many that are lost. I was hearing stories this weekend of of a young person that was living in his car and that used to sneak into Kurt's office and sleep on his couch because he had nowhere to go. A high school kid. There's needs in our community that we, we can become so hardened to that we just don't even see it anymore. That's not what Christ is about. We stand and identify for the poor just like Jesus. 
That's what we're called to do. Again, not just those with monetary needs, but those who come from broken homes and those who are discouraged in life. And It's so broad. We're talking about the brokenness of humanity. And we can't fix it all at once. We can't fix it all at once. Sometimes we look at the problem and it's so big and we say, oh, why even try? But I'll tell you what, Don Copeland, he saw a broken man and he loved me and he set my life on a course and for 40 years I've served Christ and led hundreds of people to the Lord and had a fruitful life for Jesus. Boy, I guess I'm sure glad somebody cared about the one. That song we sang at the beginning really describes me. If we sang that again, I think you would see my story wrapped in it. So we identify and stand with those in need. We live a compassionate lifestyle. We be good news to the poor. Preach the good news. And when we do, God's glorified. We receive God's commendation. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. Step into the joy of your Lord. God enriches our lives. He fills us up. And people are brought into God's kingdom. We started this with love your neighbor as yourself, right? That's what the, was the point. But Jesus in his last moments with his disciples, I love this last series where we looked at the last things that Jesus was saying. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. But at Jesus in his last moments with disciples says, a new command I give you, love one another as I've loved you so you must love one another. The bar's been substantially raised, my friends. Remember, we're new creations in Christ, ambassadors of Christ. That word, that agapo, that is used here in the Greek, it's wider than an emotional affinity. It's embracing, especially with judgment and the deliberate assent of the will as a matter of principle, duty, and propriety. In other words, it's a reasoned, thoughtful decision that I'm going to love as Christ loved. It's something we can do because he's deposited it in our lives. We only have to model which was done for us. In closing, let's commit to being Christ ambassadors. It's just been such a privilege to share this with you this morning. Let us let us. Uh, see ourselves as ambassadors living as new creations in Christ. Remember what Christ has done for you, understanding that Jesus sees in every person deserving of his compassion and mercy. Jesus cares for people because he loves them, and he has a special place in his heart for each of them. And he's given this community to us to care for. So let's expand our circle of compassion. Amen. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to really take a moment and look at how you see us and how you love us and what you've done for us. Lord, let our hearts be expanded for your kingdom's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.